Welcome to Leading Lights. Please visit leadinglightnetwork.com for more information and resources. Has anybody read Nehemiah recently? No? Okay. I'll give you a quick history lesson and then we'll talk about how it applies to us. You know that the Jews spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. Remember God said to them, if you guys don't obey and follow me, then you'll be sent into exile. So they went for 70 years. You remember that? And then at the end of 70 years, they were allowed back. But you know what's weird is only 2% of the Jews went back. Even though at the end of 70 years, they were allowed back, hardly any of them went back. Very, very small number. And Ezra, the book in the Bible just before Nehemiah, rebuilt the temple. So he goes back to Jerusalem and he takes 50,000 people and they rebuild the temple. So there's a spiritual home for God again in Jerusalem. But the walls of the city of Jerusalem were not rebuilt. And as a result, Jerusalem was just a sprawling mass of buildings and some people living here and some living there. They didn't have an identity as a city. They were just wandering people. And so as a result, the city was not prospering. It wasn't um, unified and they didn't have commerce and industry and relationships and business and farming and all that going on. It was just a ruin. Even though the temple was there, the city wasn't rebuilt. And so about 30 years later, Nehemiah is working in Babylon in the king's palace. Um, and he says he gets a, a passion in his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, even though he's never been there. He was born in Babylon and he's grown up in Babylon, but something in his heart, God put it in his heart. He had a vision for what Jerusalem could be and should be as a city built around the presence of God where God's people build relationships and prosper. And that is exactly what a church is. It's a city of people around God's presence who build relationships with one another, get an identity, they're a family, and they prosper. And as a result, God's kingdom is extended. And so Nehemiah gets this vision and he goes to the king and it says he, sat he stood before the king and his face was sad. And the king said, why are you so sad? And he said, because my city is in ruins. And it says the queen was sitting next to the king and that's Queen Esther. You know the whole story of Esther, the, the lady who goes before the king and she pleads. That's her. She's sitting there. So there's a Jew lady as queen sitting next to the king and this Jew cupbearer comes and says, I want to rebuild Jerusalem. And the king gives him letters of authority to go and gives him provision, says you can go and get all the timber that you need and all the provision you need, and gives him a legion of soldiers and warriors to go with him to protect him. And he travels the 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he arrives there to rebuild the city. I'm, I'm not going to read every single verse because it, it's a lot to read, but you can read it on your own. And he gets there, and there's these two guys, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, who are against him. But you know what's amazing? The word Tobiah means pleasing to Jehovah. He was, he was a Jew. And Sanballat as well. They were, they were of his people, but they didn't have, they were being used by the devil, basically, to stop the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. And so they came against Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets there. He prays. He fasts. 
he goes and at night and he looks around the, the city to see where the wall is broken and what's going on. And then he gathers a few of the Jews together and he says, let's do this. We can rebuild the city. We can, and he paints a picture, a vision of what the city could look like. And that's what a church leader does. He paints a picture of what the, the city of God, the, the church could be like. But Tobiah and Sanballat are against him. And they use all these different techniques to stop him. Sometimes they come um, in a sneaky way. Oh, we're not so sure. Sometimes they come with deception. They pay people to, to give him prophecies that are not of God. There's some amazing little tactics they use. Sometimes they come with intimidation. They say, we're against you and we're going to fight you. And then he has to get soldiers with swords and everything. Um, but all the time they're coming against him, even though he's got authority from the king, he's got the soldiers that he needs and he's got the provision that he needs, there's still this problem, this constant uh, opposition against what he's trying to do. And Nehemiah's amazing. He just keeps focused on what God has given him to do. He's got this picture in his mind of the walls rebuilt, the gates put in place. There's 12 gates in Jerusalem. He can see what the city could be like and the prosperity and the joy and the family values that could be born again, basically, in this city. And he keeps going. He keeps avoiding and ignoring and fighting back against the opposition. And eventually he wins. It only takes him, once he starts, it only takes him 52 days, which is not even two months to build, rebuild the walls. Because everybody, all the people who are with him, there's a band of guys who say, yes, we believe in this vision. We're going for it. They work hard. And it's an amazing chapter. Nehemiah chapter 3 talks about everyone just building in front of his house. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Each guy says, I'm going to do my little part. With the values, let's put it into church context. Each person in this room says, with the values of what this church could look like. We've talked about Lighthouse as a place of grace, of humility, of love, of God's presence, of miracle power, of reaching out to the nations. All these values that I talk about a lot and we put in our little booklet. But a bunch of us have got that. Wow, this could be a city of people who are working together, who see this, this vision and, and move forward. But then each person built in front of their own house. They did what they could do, and they built the wall. It's an incredible story. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is the most encouraging and exciting book. You, well, maybe not the most, but it's an amazing book. So let me read you chapter 3, just to give you a picture. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. By the way, there's 12 gates that I'm going to mention and they're significant. So he built the sheep gate, they consecrated it and hung its doors, they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachor the son of Imri built. Also the sons of Haseneh built the fish gate, they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them Merimoth the son of Orijah, the son of Koz made repairs. Next to them Meshulam the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel made repairs. Next to them Zadok the son of Barna made repairs. Next to them Metekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Moreover Jehoiada the son of Paseah and Meshulam the son of Besadeah repaired the old gates. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them Meltiah and the Gibeonite, Jadon the Meronathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor and the region beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harahiah, 
one of the goldsmiths made repairs. Next to them, uh, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, made repairs in front of his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashab, Benaiah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pathamoab, repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanum and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors, and it goes on and on. Each person involved in doing their part to build the gate. Can you picture it? It's an amazing picture. It's people with a vision in their mind. What they're seeing in, their, in front of them with their eyes is, is ruins. There's, nothing, there's no city. There's the temple, but there's no city. There's just nothing. But they say, I can see a vision, and I'm building it. And there's somebody who's Nehemiah, who's directing things and saying, let's put this here, let's do this, this needs to go here. And they're rebuilding the walls because in their heart they can see what it could be. Isn't that beautiful? Let me just read you a little, another little passage. Um, chapter 4. So Tobiah and Sanballat then start to be aggressive. They've tried all the other tricky ways of, of getting around it and stopping them, but then they become aggressive. They say, we're going to attack you to stop you from building. Um, verse 15, as it, And it happened, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So Nehemiah tells all the guys, these guys are going to attack us, and they get together, they pray, they, they get united to fight against them, and the, the enemy backs off. As soon as he knows that we're united and we won't allow the enemy in, he backs off. But then listen to this next bit. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And then he says, when he, when he sounds the trumpet, if they get attacked, they would all come to where the trumpet was, and they would, um, they would fight together. Let me just read another passage, chapter 6. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors on the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me no harm. So I sent messages to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave, leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them, in the same manner. This time, the enemies decided to come with a friendly um, division of focus. They said, come meet down here. We're not going to do you any harm. We just want to talk about this other good thing, this other good idea. Why don't you, you guys are doing, a, I'm putting words into the Bible, but basically they were trying to say, take your attention off the task. Look at this other good thing. And I just love Nehemiah's reply, he says, I am doing a great work. He knew in his heart 
that what he was doing was significant and it was what God had called him to do and it was so important that he didn't need any other vision. He didn't need anything else to occupy his his attention. He says, I'm doing a great thing and I'm not going to stop. And I just, I felt like the Lord was saying, you know, we get opportunities to do something great and sometimes if the devil cannot uh, oppose us with intimidation or stop us with aggression, he'll come to us with another good vision that's also good, but it takes us away from the one that he's given us. And eventually we're doing two things half-heartedly instead of one thing well. Amazing. I just really felt the Lord was saying to me, Greg, what are you called to do? Are you doing it? Not, are you looking for another great thing to do? What are you called to do and do that? Amazing. Let me just talk about the 12 gates. Is that all right? There were 12 gates in Jerusalem and each of them is significant because each of them is a way that outsiders get into the church. There are 12 gates in the city. We've said that Jerusalem is like the church and we're building up the city to make it prosperous and get identity and move forward in the Lord. But there's 12 gates and I'm I'm just going to go through them quickly. There's 12 in chapter 3. First is the sheep gate. This is people coming to church because they want pastoral family love. Do we give it to them? First gate, the first way or reason people will come into the church is they want a family and love. When they come in as a visitor, they want somebody to love them. <laughs> they want to be loved and they want to be part of a family. They want to be cared for. The second gate, chapter 3, is the fish gate. This is evangelism where Jesus said, God, and be fishers of men, where we are and we're trying to reach people, we're giving them the gospel and we're trying to bring them in, where we're actively trying to target and give out the gospel to people who are not in the church. The third gate, verse 6, is the old gate. The old gate talks about old people, but it also talks about old things of God in people's minds. You know, people have often heard about God from Sunday school, from something in their family past, and there's an old memory of God. Now they're living far away from God, like the prodigal son, but there's this old thing. It's true, hey Mark, that's what you had. (laughs) There's this thing in our minds, and that's a gate. People will come in. We've got to be ready for them and bring them in through the, the things that they know and love. So that's why we do services on Easter, why we try to do something at Christmas, why we try to do all these things. We're trying to say, what do people already know of God? Let's bring them in. The next one is the valley gate, verse 13. This is people who are in trouble when I go through the valley of the shadow of death. People who are struggling in torment, they've got needs, they're hurting, they're grieving, they're mourning, they cry out to God. And at work, when somebody's mourning or going through a hard time, that's the valley gate. We've got to bring them in. Not just one gate, we've got to have all these gates. The next one is the refuse gate, verse 14. These are the people who are the down and outs. You know, the world has discarded them. They're not wanted for jobs. They're not wanted for social functions. They're not wanted by their families. They are the refuse of society. Jesus said, go out into the streets and call out anyone who will come. We need to bring them in. Not just the well-to-do who are going to look nice in our church. Everyone. The next one is the fountain gate, verse 15. This is the fountain in the, in the middle of the town which gives water to anyone who wants. We need to hold functions, events, conferences, things where there's a fountain of living water that people can come to 
They, they may not come to church every Sunday, but they'll come to something where they can see the wonderful living water of God, the miracle power, the worship, the power of God. So we need to have events from time to time where people can come and find God, um, like our visitor service, like a, a, a special production or something where people can come and sense God. The next one is the water gate, verse 26. This means once they come, there's got to be that living water every Sunday. We've got to have a place where there's worship and the Spirit of God is moving and miracles are happening. The living water of God has to be in our church so that people say, you know what, I've tried this, 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 and this. I went to fortune tellers. I've tried all these different things, but there's miracle power in that church. I know it. I'm going there. The water, the refreshing miracle power. If they come to church and they never sense the miracle power of God, we've we've closed this gate and we've missed a whole bunch of people. The next one is the horse gate. Verse 26, 28. The horse gate. This talks about, I believe, us going and doing work to help people who are not in our church. So we go and clean somebody's flat for them. We go and help somebody move house. We go and we do things that a horse does. We carry a load for somebody and they say, wow, those Christians, there's something about them and they come into church. Amen? And then there are two more. The, la- the second last one is the east gate, verse 29. This is the gate that faces out to the east, and it's talking about looking out to the rest of the world, to the nations. It's the gate that says if we're looking out, not just in our little neighborhood, but to the ends of the earth, people will come in, and we need to be doing that. And then the last one is called the Mifkad gate, which is a Hebrew word. Mifkad means assignment or task or command. And that means people come to church to find a purpose, an, a, a, an assignment, something bigger in their lives than just going to work every day for 40 years, earning a living and dying. There's got to be a purpose to life. There's got to be something bigger than me. And that's what we give. If we open all those 12 gates, awesome, isn't it? Amazing. And then I'm just going to close by reading to you chapter 8. This is what happened after they'd built the walls. I love this so much. Verse 1, now all the people gathered together. This is after they've finished. They've built the walls. They've built the gates. They've got the city. And this is the result. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that, would, that was in front of the water gate. I love that. It was basically we worship. They gathered together in the square all in one place. We've got security. We've got identity. We're one people now. We're in a city. And there's the water gate, the, the presence of God. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. That's about four hours of preaching. (laughs) A long sermon, okay? Before the men and the women and those who could understand, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'm going to read a little bit later how they responded. It says they all lifted their hands and said, Amen, Amen, for four hours. And they cried while he was explaining the Bible to them. Amazing. Verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. Can I just say that in his day it was a platform of wood? In our day, it's a platform of computer programming. We build whatever we need to be able to put God's Word out. That's what we're doing with the website, with church on Sunday. 
Everything is just to build a platform so that we can share the love of God, the power of God, and the Word of God. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Uh, verse 7, and he helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's what we're doing. We're not just reading the Bible on, on the websites and in everything we do. We're saying, people, this is how God's life impacts your life, and we give it to people. And that's what the church, that's what we're trying to do. That's, in a nutshell, what Lighthouse is all about. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those far for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, and you've heard this verse many times, but you've never heard it in this context, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where this verse comes from. They were stood in a city that was re recently built in protection, in security, hearing the words of life. They were saying, amen, amen. They were weeping. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he goes on, but I'm not going to read it now. Friends, I hope tonight that you've just got a picture of what we're doing. I just want to say that it's not, it's not a small thing. It's not just, oh, well, what should we do this Sunday. It's a great work. It really is. It's worth, it's worth giving our lives to. It, it's, it's not just a human thing that we're doing here. We're trying to do something that will bless the nations with the Word of our God. And the way we do it is we build a city and we build a platform and we share God's love. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry financially by making a donation on the giving page of leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.